Let us pray. Father God, as we come before your word this morning, this chapter has a feast within it. And so let us partake of some of the good portion this morning through the power of your spirit. Let us see more of Christ, more of our Lord who loves us, more of our Lord who saves us through this text. Yes, this in Jesus' name. Amen. July of 2018. July of 2019. July of 2020. July of 2021. July of 2022. July of 2023. This is my 6th July preaching from this pulpit. It's a marker of time for me. And I was thinking about that marker quite a bit this week as I was in this passage. What would I say to myself back in 2018, Kevin? Who stood here for the first time it was it was hot and muggy that day we didn't have the ac yet but um who stood there on that day what what if i could give like just a brief message to him what would i say and the first thing that came to mind was very rational and logical of course invest in bitcoin and tesla but but that that wouldn't be any good that wouldn't be any good But the thing was, the path that I expected at the onset of July 2018 has been radically different in many ways. There have been hardships, there have been trials, there have been difficulties, unique difficulties. But I wouldn't want 2018 Kevin to be skittish about what the Lord was calling him into, that the path that the Lord was setting out for him. And so I wouldn't want to say something like, you know, a, a tornado is going to hit the church, but that's, that's really going to be small potatoes to some more stuff coming down the road. Or, of course, we all know the, the, the greatest hardship, or maybe you don't know the greatest hardship of the church, but I have photo evidence of this, right? I had no gray hair before the baptism a Bruce Stocking. And ever since the baptism of Bruce Stocking, gray hair has been breeding like mad on my chin. I wouldn't want to be skittish because the Lord's been kind to me. The Lord's been good to me. The Lord's done amazing things. The Lord's done amazing things when I thought it was at a dead end to, to show a different pathway, a different way. And and this chapter of chapter 13 of Exodus is very much about the road less traveled, about the roads that, that Christ sets before us, about the Lord of the, the road of our Lord's leading, how it's a different pathway than the world would first expect. And so I really do believe if I could say any one thing, any one thing to myself of six years ago, I would say, do not fear. 
Really, Kevin, do not fear, for God is with you. And again, Exodus chapter 13 is really a chapter that wants to say all to make clear to all of us, remember, I am the God who is with you. And the fact is that all of us have moments when life unfolds and doesn't go the way we planned. And we get rather upset in those moments. Actually, I think often, uh, probably the majority of moments in ministry where somebody is upset is because really at the heart of the matter, really when you look deeper down at the matter, there was some desire that has now been thwarted, some path that has now been changed, something they wanted. In their original plans they made, in the original plans they hoped for, and I'm including myself in this, and then anger comes to fruition because we wanted to walk a different way than the pathway that the Lord had for us. Whether alone or alongside others, God puts up roadblocks at times, barriers at times, to those places that we thought we wanted to go, to those things we thought we wanted to have. And we are often tempted in such moments to crumble. We're tempted to crumble because we forget. We have nothing to fear so long as we remember that God is with us. Now, if you quickly glanced over the first 16 verses, the main overarching sermon point I just laid out for you, you, you might, and, and see where you can find it, you might be scratching your head a little bit. Actually, uh, these verses are a little disjointed. The first two talk about the firstborn, and then verses 3 through 10 talk about, remember the Passover and the unleavened bread? Once again, and then 11 to 16, go back into the firstborn. And so it's sort of disorienting and it's hard to kind of, what is God trying to, to make clear here? And I think the first thing he's making clear is his people are on the precipice of the wilderness. His people are on the precipice of going forth into a barren wasteland. And I think especially verses 9 and 10 help unpack the fact that when we go along those pathways that are hard, that are difficult, that we don't want to walk down, we need to be a people who remember. We need to be a people who remember what the Lord has done for us. We need to be a people who remember the, the goodness of the redemption of the Lord of the Passover. And remember, do we remember what the Passover means? Yes, it, it means important part jumping over. But what was the primary definition, actually? What was that main definition we looked at a couple weeks ago? It was the, the Lord's meal of the limp. That as you limp along, remember the Lord who delivered you in the meal of the limp. And so I think that's a first a big part of this. Remember what I have done for you as you go out into the wilderness. Remember what I have done for you in the hard moments. Remember what I have done for you in the trying times. Remember what I have done for you as your Lord when I saved you in the meal of the limp. And when you remember that meal of the limp, then and then you are ready to hand over to God, your firstborn, 
Now, the firstborn in the ancient world was everything to the family, the firstborn male. Nathaniel and Conrad, you're wonderful people, but David would have meant everything in the ancient world. Thankfully, you're, you were born to modern parents. So, you know, your parents don't suffer from that idea. But that would have been the firstborn of the family was the, the greatest insurance policy. And the God who saved them through taking the firstborn of Egypt now says to them of the redeemed, consecrate your firstborn to me. And this is actually going to be a different idea than really every other society of the world at this time. Every continent except Antarctica, because Antarctica is protected by regal penguins, had some form of child sacrifice. The Aztecs, four days, sacrificed more than 80,000 people. Why? Because you got to send your child to death. If God's really mad, if the famine's really long, if the hardship's really difficulty, you just got to get rid of the children. You got to just get rid of the children in hardship. Sad thing is, there's that philosophy sometimes in our own country this day. There's grace and mercy bound for such individuals who've committed such sin, but that philosophy still lives. They were going into a land in Canaan that, hey, there's no water. There's no rain. I need, I need food for my crops. I need food. Let me sacrifice my child. Maybe that will appease God. And here is a unique people, a distinct people in all the world, in all the continents of the world, except again Antarctica because it has the regal penguins. That is a people that does not. That God says, no, 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 no. I want you to dedicate I want you to consecrate. I want you to um, give your firstborn to me in holiness. I want them to grow in holiness. I want them to grow to know me. I want you to set them apart for my purposes. And the interesting thing about this moment is that this has parallels with Abraham's moment out of Babylon. Here Abraham had been called out of the region that we know of in the Bible as, as kind of Babylon. And when he was called out of that area, the Lord basically desired for uh, a sacrifice to be made. The Lord asked Abraham to sacrifice his son upon the mountain. And Abraham's faith when God's promises was such that even though he, he was heading up the mountain. As he talked to the servants, he said to the servants, both he and I are coming back, have a meal ready for us, have food prepared for us. Because even if I have to go through with it, I know God is a God who will honor his promises, even if resurrection is needed in order to, <sighs> this for this son that God has laid so many promises upon, God will do it. We're coming back down the mountain. And God blessed the faith of Abraham in leaving Babylon and trusting in the Lord, holding fast to the faith in the Lord. And he provided a sacrificial ram in place of his son. And here now, 
we have children of the Lord being consecrated, having a sacrificial lamb being provided for them as they are called out of their own captivity. In one sense, they are all new households like unto the household of Abraham. But did you notice that one animal? That one animal that gets to escape such a fate in the life of Israel. It's in verse 13. All the animals that the Hebrews used in animal husbandry, they were included in this sacrificial demand. They had to, you had to take the firstborn, so the sheep, the goats, the oxen. They had to be sacrificed. But one animal gets a free pass. And it's the donkey. Why the donkey? This is one of those moments where people who don't believe in Scripture go, see, this is why this book is so dumb. I don't want to believe in a book like this. It talks about donkeys. And donkeys don't get to die? What, what, what makes sense about that? Well, see... The donkey was the only animal in close contact to the Hebrew people that was considered an unclean animal. And an unclean thing can't make a sacrifice to save itself as an unclean thing. Just like we cannot offer the sacrifice which saves us. Because we also too are like a donkey. I'll refrain from using the J way of saying a donkey. We too are like a donkey. And we cannot be the ones who make a sacrifice that saves ourselves. We need a clean, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when we remember that, we see in this actual verse 13, there's this quick little hint of the gospel. That an unclean thing can't sacrifice for itself in order to be clean, that you need something that's pure, spotless, holy. And so the donkey gets to be redeemed vicariously through the lamb who takes away its sins. And it's at this moment, this perplexing moment of the donkey, the children start asking questions again. Notice that they're in worship too, and they're a part of worship and they're connected to worship in such a way that they're able to ask questions. What's going on? I don't understand. I don't get this. God doesn't expect him to understand everything, but God loves when children are a part of his worship. He's, and he desires the parents and those around the community of faith to answer these questions for the children. We're all going to have things that are difficult to understand at first, and yet more and more there's a purpose to why we want the children within the worship service even. Uh, Bruce and I and a couple other pastors were talking to the chaplain down at Frederick Living. Love that guy. I, the Seasholtz know of him. And we were talking about the state of the world and the state of the schemes of, frankly, evil that desires children at a young age, to indoctrinate them into their own religious faith systems of superstition and myth. And he was talking to a Jewish rabbi friend of his, and the Jewish rabbi said, the, the key thing we really try to focus on in 
in the first five years of a, a Jewish child, of rearing them in our community, is that by the age of five, they understand, I'm Jewish. I'm supposed to be different than those in the world. I'm supposed to be, I'm, I'm set apart. I'm uniquely consecrated unto the Lord. That, that the community really invests itself in allowing that tension to exist, that, yeah, you're, you're not supposed to be like the world. And the irony about that is we live in an America where I think a lot of the Christian church has forgotten about that. We kind of get offended when the world might not like us or, or, or we get embarrassed if we can't do things just as the world can. And we've forgotten that we are a people supposed to set apart our children, to consecrate them unto the Lord at an early age, holding them apart, setting them apart. And I'll make just a quick and brief, and I know some of you will disagree with this conclusion, but that's okay. You're allowed to disagree with this conclusion. But we're going to have some more infant baptisms to come here. I think the next one is next week. And I think we might have one the week after that. And I understand that people, some people feel convicted that that's not the best practice, and that's okay. But we do have biblical reason to at least give it consideration. Because here is God, as people are about to enter into the wilderness, and there are children who don't know their faith. They're asking questions. They don't understand everything. And yet they're being raised within the community of the Lord. They're being consecrated and set apart by the Lord. And the Lord is pleased with that. He's pleased with that. That's why whether you're a Baptist family or you're a covenant baptism family, um, regardless, if that child leaves your household, if the child leaves my household, and, and they want nothing to do with God, we feel betrayal. How could they leave the faith? How could they leave this community? Because we strive to set our kids as apart from the world. And so God is pleased in such an endeavor. But also a, a quick point because of the silliness of the age we live in. When we talk about the consecration of the firstborn, we could think, oh, this is just the Bible being a men's club book again. Because the English-speaking world, not so much the Latin world or the French-speaking world or the Greek world, or because they have gendered languages, has uh, created this phenomenon when, where we don't all of a sudden know what a boy or girl are. Maybe you just think, when you think of the firstborn, oh, that's just a ma male thing. Understand this about how the New Testament talks about the firstborn. First off, Jesus is called the firstborn. In places like Matthew 1, chapter, 20, chapter 1, verse 25, Luke chapter 2, verse 7. But also Jesus elsewhere is called the firstborn from among the dead. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, Revelation 1, verse 5. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it labels Jesus the firstborn over all creation but also because we have been grafted into Jesus through the work of Christ. We've been saved by Jesus in places such as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. We can read how all of those who have been saved are considered 
a part of the assembly of the firstborn, or as it's put in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul says, Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. Brethren means we're, we're all marked and identified with him. We, have, we are partakers of the, the firstborn status in certain ways. Obviously, we are not the, the essence of, the, of Christ, but when God looks upon us, he gives us the blessings that he also, he gives us, it's as if he sees the firstborn son himself in forgiveness, in mercy, and in love. And so, and then even when the New Testament calls both men and women saints, you know what that word means? Saints, it basically means the set-apart ones, the consecrated ones. So all of us can read Exodus 13, 1 through 16, and rather than seeing a confusing jumbling of topics, see something of the following. How once the unclean ones have been redeemed by a lamb, and are now set apart heading towards the wilderness, striving to pass down the faith to future generations. And while the God of the tenth plague in Egypt passed over the Hebrews, it was so the Hebrews actually could pass on the next generations of their families unto him. And then in verse 17, we learn of the God of the zigzag. God, in leading their path, recognizes that he's not going to take the most direct route. He actually says of this route that, that if he were to take it, they would have run back to Egypt. The hardship, the fear that they would have had at the side of the Philistines, and, and that's going to partially be fulfilled later, but they would have run back to Egypt. That they weren't ready for the kind of war that that lay in store for them in the land of Canaan. And so that's a beautiful thing. God, as he leads us in this life, God, as he was, you know, the God of July 2018 is the same God of July 2023. He doesn't lead us in paths that would just have us chuck the faith. He's a God of perseverance through the power of his spirit. But the thing is, and don't miss this, war will still follow them. War is still coming for them. Hardship is still coming for them. They're not going to get to escape all of these things in this life. I mean, God could, could, for all his believers, eliminate all suffering and hardship in this life before it even comes upon us. But he's not interested in that in this life. We'll get that in the life to come, but not this life. We have to pass through the wilderness first. But God does make sure in verse 18, his people have an armor on them, that they're actually ready for battle as they approach the wilderness as they approach the Red Sea. And I wonder if the Apostle Paul ever thought about this moment when he would later write in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 through 19, thought about those people with armor on as they're about to head into the wilderness, the following. Put on the whole armor of God, 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit and the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that Words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. I think we should all ask ourselves, how's the path going in our day-to-day life? Have we forgotten that God is with us? Have we forgotten that God has armored us? Have you forgotten that a life with God is not always about being easy? But rather, a life with God is about learning how to grow deeper in faith, about doing battle in the wilderness and being ready for battle in the wilderness. And then in verse 19, Moses brings the remains of Joseph. I must admit that working through the Joseph story last year was one of my favorite things I've, I've done as a pastor here at Old Goshen Hoppend. The favorite son of the patriarch Israel, patriarch Jacob, who, like Moses, did not surrender himself to love the wealth and the things that he was lavished with in Egypt, but faithfully held firm and stood fast and believed upon the promises of God. If you remember at the end of that story of Joseph, as he was getting ready to depart, He desired to be placed in an ark in the center of the community that they might remember that the promises of God, that they might remember that God will come back for them and so that he might be buried in the promised land with them. And so Moses takes that body. He takes that that ark. And yet, here's the irony. Moses already knows, he's been told by God at Mount Sinai earlier, that the the God who is the great I am, that the patriarchs are all alive in the paradise and presence of the Lord as they live, so live. That they're more alive now than they've ever been, that they haven't ceased to exist. And so there's actually an interesting question that we need to ask ourselves here. And the question is this, why take a bunch of dry bones back to Israel? Why not just leave the dry bones where they are? And I I can be sympathetic. This is just a, you know, this is just a tent. But the reality is, I actually think that Moses here, whether he knows it or not, through the power of the Spirit is hinting at the fact that 
there is a resurrection to come. That there is life for dry bones. Even before we get to the promises of Ezekiel uh, chapter 37. That dry bones will come alive once again. And how do we know that? How do we know that is from the firstborn of all creation? Because he was left for dead in a, in a tomb. And all he was was for a, a while rotting flesh separating from bone. And it seemed like the most evil thing ever done and seemed like the darkest day that ever existed. We kind of sang about that in the garden. Uh, It seemed like the worst of all things. The wildernesses of all wildernesses. This This was a wilderness, a temptation, a wilderness struggle that was even greater than the wilderness struggle easier earlier in and far easier in comparison uh, to in Jesus's ministry when he was tempted by Satan. This seemed to be the triumph of evil itself. And yet God gave life to that body, the firstborn of the dead. And that means that God will give life to Joseph. God will give life to all the dry bones of those who are his um, and be found in him. And so God is taking the long route. God is taking the zigzag route. And God is headed towards the wilderness. And they're on the precipice of that place in this moment. And yet, then we see in the final two verses, 20 and 21, He's the God who still is with us as we're in the desolate moments. that I know that quote is confusing at the front of your bulletin, but the, what the quote is saying is this. The beginning of the Bible starts with a looking out at the world and it's formless and void and the Spirit hovers and the Spirit and the power of God begins to create. And Moses intentionally, when he talks about the Spirit, he talks about the Shekinah glory, the hovering power of God, that blankets this people, that surrounds this people, both by day and by night, God is basically declaring, even though it looks formless and void, even though it looks bleak at times, even though it looks hard, I am the God who is with you. I am the God who can create life and death. I am the God who can create life in difficult circumstances. And so in this passage, what we've learned is God will not take you down roads where you'll entirely lose all faith. But he will take us down roads that will bring things that are most certainly hard and where you and I will struggle to keep our faith and to keep our focus upon him. And while we're not always going to love where his road goes, we're just going to have to trust him and we're going to have to follow it. Because as would later be written in Proverbs fourteen twelve, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Our saving Lord says to us this morning and every morning, he whispers to us, I know a better way. I know a way where dry bones and desolate landscapes are able to have life. 
in spite of the odds, in spite of what doubts you carry with you on the road ahead. So my children who ask questions in the struggles, who ask questions and fail to understand what exactly I'm doing in your life, go out in the wilderness and carry the truth with you. Know that you're armed and you're covered by me. Remember what I've already done and carry with you what I've already promised. And remember I'm all around you. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you are the Lord who blesses us as children of yours. That you treat us with privileges only fit for the firstborn. You give us such privileges through the work of Christ. So that not even death, not even the dry bones of those who died in faith, just a mere few footsteps away from us. That we need be concerned about any of it, any of the wilderness situations in this life, any of the hardships, any of the paths that you have us walk. Because you are with us. And so we need not fear. And so now, Lord, as a people ever mindful of your work, let us take a moment to quietly and privately confess those times where we forget to delight and and forget to trust and follow the path that you put before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. confession of sin. O oh God, we come to you today as foolish sheep who find it our own natural inclination to wander far from you. You have set your love upon us, chosen us, and saved us, but we find it hard to trust you and prefer to turn to our own wisdom and understanding. You have given us the great privilege of knowing and worshiping our Creator, the one true God. But we prefer to bow before our worthless idols in search of the morsels of comfort or pleasure they offer us. You are our sacrificial lamb. You never strayed from the path of obedience to your Father. Even when that path led you to a brutal cross, and the mockery of those who should have worshipped and adored you. Help us to see where the path of blessing lies, and give us hearts that are eager to travel that path. Make us humble followers instead of prideful leaders that delight in pursuing you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us now hear our shared assurance of pardon. It comes to us from Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 